Welcome back to part two of our Freud in Focus podcast on Freud's paper, Delusions and Dreams in Jensen's Gradiva. Now, last week we discussed the context of the paper. So Jensen's book suggested to Freud by Jung um, and Freud's visit to the Vatican's museum in Rome. Um, and, and it was Freud's experience of seeing the bas-relief and wanting to commission a copy of it for his consulting room in Bergasse in Vienna. So this was this was really the background to the paper. And we came across the main character in the original novel, Norbert Hanold, who had become obsessed with a relief of this figure. And uh, he had named the woman in the, in the figure um, Rediva. And this was because of the way that it had seemed to capture her in the act of stepping along. Now, where we left things last week was with Hanold having a dream that he had met the girl in Pompeii in AD 79 at the destruction of Vesuvius. And then with him waking up and seeing a girl in the street that resembled the Gradiva of his bas relief. He then went to chase after her in his pajamas. We also talked quite a lot about charm last time, the charm of writing and the charm of the story itself. So quite a lot happens in those first pages, Tom. Well, yeah, there is quite a lot going on, isn't there, in those first few pages? And you remember that we even had a canary at one point. <laughs> yeah. um, so this kind of takes us quite nicely, I think, to that notion of charm that you mentioned, Jamie. Um, so after returning from the streets, disheveled and humiliated, Norbert hears the song of a canary in the house opposite, which leads him to identify with the caged bird and under the influence of the mild spring air um, and an impulse that he can't quite place, he decides to spread his wings and travel south to Italy. So Freud suggests that the author has left us in a state of uncertainty as readers. This is a privilege of the author in his words. It is the charm of his language which allows him to get away with creating this sense of uncertainty. And it also offers us, as readers, a provisional reward for staying with it. This charm permits a pleasure that is specific to the formal and aesthetic qualities of the experience. The linguistic and narrative techniques that allow the writer to seduce us into keeping on reading. So just as Scheherazade seduces the Sultan to keep listening to her story in 1001 Nights, so Jensen seduces us into carrying on reading his confused and almost muddled story by offering us a provisional reward. Now this is also reminiscent of Freud's notion of forepleasure or forelust that he uses to explain the mechanisms of work in jokes and their economic justification. Another striking feature of this passage is that sentence you read, Jamie, where Freud writes, 
This division between imagination and intellect destined him to become an artist or a neurotic. He was one of those whose kingdom is not of this world. This specific constitution has intimations of Freud's later description of the psychical constitution of Leonardo da Vinci. But whereas psychical constitution, circumstances and talent combine to produce the artistic genius of Leonardo, for Norbert Hanolt, it's led to neurosis. The link that Freud makes here between the artist and the neurotic is of course very noticeable. Neither are comfortable with reality as it is. So Norbert heads off to Italy and he begins in Rome, which is of course where the original of his Gradiva is situated. But he becomes restless and then travels on to Naples. There he becomes annoyed by the fact that there are so many honeymooning couples buzzing around everywhere. And so he decides to go on to Pompeii, ostensibly because all of these honeymooners are not stopping at the city destroyed by Vesuvius, but are carrying on to Capri. Thus he finds himself, contrary to expectations in Freud's words, in Pompeii. Of course, as good psychoanalytically informed readers, we sense that there must be some other hidden motivations at play here. Wandering around the ruins of Pompeii at the midday hour, when the ghosts are said to walk about, he becomes aware of a desire to get beyond the lifeless academic pursuits of the past offered by archaeology, and to access it somehow beyond the senses. Suddenly he sees Gradiva stepping along on the stones of Pompeii. And he also becomes aware of the fact that the impulse that was driving him to go to Pompeii came from a desire to find a trace of her there, the trace of her very foot on the stones. Gradiva disappears and Norbert presumes that he's seen a spirit. As readers, we think initially that it might be an hallucination, although there's a lizard that runs across the path of the walking woman and Freud suggests that this makes us drop that initial conclusion. So Norbert follows her into the house of Meliga, as one of the larger dwelling places in the ruins of Pompeii. And thinking that she is of Hellenic origin, he speaks to her in ancient Greek. She replies, of course, by saying, if you want to speak to me, do so in German. Right, so let's look at the text now. This is page 18 of the Standard Edition, Volume 9. Freud writes, What is humiliation for us readers? So the author has been making fun of us and, with the help, as it were, of a reflection of the Pompeian sunshine, has inveigled us into a delusion on a small scale so that we may, we may be forced to pass a milder judgment on the poor wretch on whom the midday sun was really shining. Now, however, that we have been cured of our brief confusion, we know that Gradiva was a German girl of flesh and blood, a solution which we were inclined to reject as the most improbable one. And now, with a quiet sense of superiority, we may wait to learn what the relation was between the girl and her marble image. 
and how our young archaeologist arrived at the fantasies which pointed towards a real personality. This is just another one of Freud's interjections, um, because you know Jensen has taken us on this journey between from humiliation to a sort of sense of superiority. This is Freud's sort of, I don't know, interpretation of it. Freud seems to really want to zone in on on the reading effect here, doesn't he, Tom? So, so how does the story progress from here? Yeah, I, I really like what Freud does here, actually, in this in this paragraph. Um, so he, he suggests that the author has kind of deluded us on a small scale by the help of the reflection of the Pompeian sunshine. What a lovely phrase, the reflection of the Pompeian sunshine. So this kind of Pompeian sunshine, to me, suggests the shimmer of the Apollonian screen that Nietzsche saw as complementary to the Dionysian in Attic Theatre in his book. The birth of tragedy. So this kind of formal brilliance allows us to experience the tragic content at a safe remove. It's the splendor that Lacan found in Sophocles' Antigone. Although in the case of Jensen's Gradiva, of course, it's on a much less tragic scale. But having been dazzled by this Apollonian brilliance, we now have a, this sense of superiority in Freud's words. I always think it's funny how often in life that sense of superiority is kind of conditioned by an original humiliation. So armed with this new sense of superiority, let's follow the narrative on a little further. Unlike us, superior readers, Hanold does not overcome or dispense with his delusion after hearing Gradiva speak German to him. We know that she's a real person, but he is not yet able to fully accept this. His delusion, suggests Freud, probably has internal roots in him of which we know nothing and which do not exist in ourselves. So Hanolt is convinced that the woman is in fact a midday ghost. He speaks to her a little and when she gets up to leave, a butterfly appears. He takes this as a sign that she must return to Hades. But as she leaves, he asks her if she would come again at the same hour, the midday hour, tomorrow. Even though he has decided that the woman is a walking ghost, he still goes to two of the inns or taverns uh, near Pompeii, hoping that he might come across Gradiva again. Now the next day, Hanolt makes his way to the same spot in Pompeii by, as Freud says, an irregular route. And he finds a sprig of asphodel. And asphodel is a flower associated with the underworld. And he picks, he plucks this sprig and takes it with him to his rendezvous. On the journey, he again becomes disillusioned with the whole lifeless and pointless pursuit of archaeology. His focus now is on a different matter. Namely, what could be the nature of the bodily apparition of a being like Gradiva, who was at once dead, and even though only at the midday hour, also alive. When Hanold meets Gradiva, she questions him and finds out about the dream he had and the relief of the woman on his study wall and in his particular interest in the posture of her foot. Rather than correcting him there and then, the woman seems to enter into his delusion, 
half suggesting that she might be the figure of his fantasy. She goes on to tell him that her name is Zoe, which he informs her means life in Greek. She then leaves him uh, with a couple of enigmatic phrases. She suggests that she has long grown used to being dead and that fortunate people are offered roses in spring, but the gift of the asphodel flower is somehow appropriate as it is right that he should give the, the flower of forgetfulness. As readers here, we begin to wonder whether she may be dead to him, not in reality, or perhaps that he may have forgotten her. In fact, she's she may well be very much alive. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose that takes us to another one of Freud's interjections, because he writes, well, if we go to page 21 of the, of the text, Freud writes, We are beginning to understand now and to feel some hope. If the young lady in whose form Gradiva had come to life again accepted Hanold's delusion so fully, she was probably doing so in order to set him free from it. There was no other way of doing so. To contradict it would have to put an end to any such possibility, even the serious treatment of a real case of illness of the, of the kind could proceed in no other way than to begin by taking up the same ground as the delusional structure and then investigating it as completely as possible. If Zoe was the right person for the job, we shall soon learn, no doubt, how to cure a delusion like our heroes. We should also be glad to know how such delusions arise. It would be a strange coincidence, but nevertheless, not without an example or parallel, if the treatment of the delusion were to coincide with its investigation, and if the explanation of its origin were to be revealed precisely while it was being dissected. We may suspect, of course, that if so, our case of illness might end up as a commonplace love story. But the healing power of love against a delusion is not to be despised and was not our hero's infatuation for Gradiva's sculpture, a complete instance of being in love, though of being in love with something past and lifeless. So lovely. Um, now, we've got some themes here, which Freud, I suppose, will take up later on, particularly this, this notion of delusion and how the sight of the character Zoe begins the process of sort of setting Hanold free of the, of the delusion. Um, by entering into it. And there's also this mention of the healing power of love to help against a delusion. Tom, what do you make of this move? And, and perhaps could you carry on with the story as well? Sure, yeah. Well, um, well I, think, I think it's actually a really key paragraph for us, um, both looking backwards to some of our previous discussions on Freud and Focus and also looking forward to the way that Freud would describe the plot of this novel in relation to the work of the psychoanalyst. So let's start um, with what Freud says about delusions. He suggests that because uh, Gradiva, or Zoe now, enters into Hanold's delusion, it's probably uh, in order to set him free from it. So in order to successfully treat a delusion, Freud says that one must first take up the same ground as the delusional structure 
and then investigate it as completely as possible. So rather than contradicting a delusion, we have to enter into it and try to understand its structure. Now you'll remember in our previous text in Constructions in Analysis, we came across this notion that the delusions of paranoiacs always contain a kernel of truth. And it's the same message here, I think. Gradivas, and later the analysts' approach, is to create a process whereby the kernel of truth is allowed to appear. Of course, we're not talking uh, here about the treatment of the mad other who is shut away in the sanatorium, like the canary in its cage, but someone who has to be allowed to live and speak their own way to the truth. The other point that stood out here from this paragraph is that mention of love, of course, Jamie. The healing power of love is a potent force against a delusion. Hanold's whole delusion can be said in a way to have originated in love, the love of the sculpture, which is albeit past and lifeless. So love is both the cause of and the cure for Hanold's delusion. It acts like the Greek word pharmakon, which is both poison and remedy. Of course, we know that Freud will refer to eros, you know, eros as love, as one of the primal drives in his later work. And there's also that theory of transference, that particularly psychoanalytic form of love that he will elaborate on later on. But we'll come to that later. For the rest of the story, we observe, as readers, the slow revealing or uncovering of Hanold's delusional structure. The process is similar to that which takes place, actually, in Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. Enthüllung is the word that Freud uses there. So we can see that Jensen's Gradiva is related to Oedipus Rex somehow. They're both kind of works that illustrate the transactions, almost, of the psychoanalytic session. So when Zoe leaves Hanold after their second conversation, she leaves behind a sketchbook, which he initially thinks is a sheet of papyrus. He notices that Zoe Gradiva probably left the scene of the previous meetings through a narrow gap in the portico, not by sinking into the earth, as he first thought. These signs indicate that the midday ghost Gradiva is gradually turning into the real woman, Zoe, in Hanold's imagination. So he begins to wonder what will happen if he were to touch her hand. He then has a conversation with a man who catches lizards. It's an odd little interlude, really. This man seems very vaguely familiar, um, and he talks to him about a lizard making a lizard trap. Um, Hanold then purchases a clasp, which is said to have been retrieved from a girl's acid, ashes sorry, after the eruption of Vesuvius. He then has a dream that Gradiva was making a snare for a lizard out of a blade of grass. And he shrugs off the idea of this dream as utter madness, in Freud's words, and frees himself from the dream by the help of an invisible bird which offered a short laughing call and carried off, um, was carried off uh, the lizard in its beak 
It's so surreal. Sorry. It's very surreal. There's so much going on. It's re- it's difficult to kind of summarise it because it just seems so chaotic. <laughs> but I think this is part of the whole dream delusion thing, isn't it, for the character? And that that's also part of the reading effect that we have. You know, um, you remember we talked we spoke about Hoffman and and the Sandman and Freud's analysis of that a while ago, and we mentioned that 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 had a kind of similar feel to it. You know, mm. so I, I think that's what's happening here as well. Um, anyway, so. The events that we, that Freud has described so far, um, he suggests through these events um, that Norbert's old delusion is starting to show some cracks. There's bits of reality kind of seeping in almost. So um, he starts to wonder whether Gradiva might also appear at other times as well as the midday hour. Maybe she's not a midday ghost. At their next meeting, he then gives her a clasp, the clasp that he picked up um, that he purchased earlier. Um, and she shares her picnic with him. And then a fly lands on her hand while they're eating a bread roll, and he instinctively slaps it. So, of course, now he's sure that she's a real woman. She's flesh and blood. But more than that, she says to him, there is no doubt, Norbert Hanolt, that you are out of your mind. So not only is this ghost Gradiva actually a, the real woman Zoe, but she also knows who Norbert is. So after this exchange, um, they're just about to keep on talking and it's interrupted uh, by a couple of honeymoon honeymooners who call out to Zoe. They know who she is. And they're under the assumption that Zoe and Norbert are also on their honeymoon. honeymoon. Mm. And of course, at this point, Norbert runs off, kind of, you know, all embarrassed. So at the next meeting, at which she arrives confused and ashamed, Gradiva informs him of her real identity. Her name is, in fact, Zoe Burtgang, daughter of the professor of zoology, Richard Burtgang, who lives across the street from him in the house with the caged canary. But this moment of revelation is not brought about in a flash of light. You know, um, Zoe continues to pay due respect to his delusional structure and kind of gently coaxes him back towards reality. So it appears that Norbert had replaced a figure from his childhood past, Zoe, with a figure from the historical past. And his archaeological fantasies for Gradiva were a kind of echo of his forgotten childhood memories. Mm. So where archaeology may have led to the forming of the labyrinth of complexity in Hanold's mind, it also offers him a way out of the labyrinth as he rediscovers Zoe through the figure of Gradiva as someone who had to be dug up and brought to life again, in Freud's words. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so... It's, I feel like that's really apparent as well in this kind of contrast of, you know, what Hanold's sort of interested in, uh, sort of visually, in my mind anyway, this, like, sort of grey and beige, like, uh, terracotta bas-relief mm-hmm. world versus the kind of colourful lizards and parrots. <laughs> well, absolutely. Like the world, you know, is world, the world of his imagination and the world of <laughs> his experience is so colourful, you know, right, isn't it? You know, compared to this grey, dusty, kind of ashen-buried, kind of, you know, Vesuvius experience, you exactly. know. So so you can see these two worlds kind of coming together almost at this point, I think. Mm. Okay, so now Freud starts to weave together some of the themes from the story and make a, a few interpretations 
he describes the, the early relationships of Zoe in this kind of characteristically Oedipal way. And he asks this rhetorical question, what is our justification for this piece of psychological analysis, which might well seem arbitrary? So Tom, when Freud answers his own question, it leads him into talking about the psychoanalytic theory of, of repression. How does it get to this? Yeah, well, Freud begins kind of this discussion by offering a clue actually quoted directly from the text that Zoe, describing the change in Norbert, which had so greatly disturbed her in the past, uh, compares him to an archaeopatrix, which is never an easy thing to say, an archaeopatrix. <laughs> it's a kind of bird-like monstrosity that belongs to the archaeology of zoology, and that's kind of Freud's definition of it. So... Freud describes this kind of vision, this archaeopatrix, as a perfect compromise idea or an intermittent idea, um, a compromise formation, as he'll later call it elsewhere, which combines uh, both a connection to her father, to Zoe's father from zoology, and to Norbert himself in archaeology. So, hence the kind of Oedipal interpretation the father remains. And as you mentioned, Jamie, the plot is illustrative of the theory of repression. So after Hanold's fascination with archaeology turned his attention to the woman, or women of bronze and marble, you know, as you mentioned, um, for his early friendship uh, did not develop into a passion, uh, but it was dissolved, according to Freud, and passed into such profound forgetfulness that he did not even recognise Zoe when he saw her in Pompeii. So this profound forgetfulness is an example of repression for Freud, whereby the recalling of a forgotten memory meets with internal resistance. So whilst the repressed may be unavailable to consciousness, it retains a capacity for effective action and can be reactivated by external events. The repressed always returns, and Freud quotes um, Horace here in the text uh, when he's, he writes, you may drive out nature with a pitchfork, but she will always return. In the instance of Gradiva, we have a very appropriate example of the mechanism of this process, whereby it is the possibility of discovering the impression or trace of Gradiva's sandaled feet in the stones of Pompeii that impels Hanolt to travel south. It's like the memory trace left by the repressed memory itself. Freud also shows how the repressed returns, specifically through the medium of repression itself. He writes of a young man who was in treatment with him, who as a boy fled the first stirrings of sexuality by burying himself in learning and studying, particularly in mathematics and geometry. However, in the course of his studies, he became paralysed, in Freud's words, by two apparently innocent problems. Firstly, this one. Two bodies come together with the speed of... Dot, dot, dot. And another problem. On a cylinder, the diameter of whose surface M describes a cone... Dot, dot, dot. Um, <laughs> now, we read these... We, obviously, we read these two... These two kind of geometrical problems, um, you know, it's completely kind of, you know, on one level, but um, this seemingly innocuous <laughs> formulas 
contains these traces of kind of sexual acts or events, the two bodies to come coming together, the cone appearing on a surface. And um, as a result of this, this young man that was in treatment with Freud felt kind of betrayed by mathematics and geometry. And he also took flight from from them as well as um, as well as sexuality. So you can see how the repressed sexuality returns in this kind of in this um in these geometrical equations for this man. It's actually quite yeah. It's, it's a great it's a great example, and it's quite hard not to laugh actually at Freud's description of this young man. You know, but this this you know imagine being haunted by sexualized geometry. You know that's that's kind of what we're talking about here. Such an oxymoron. It's a riot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I guess for Freud the key thing is though that the, it's the the very medium through which the original repression was enforced becomes the vehicle of its return, kind of thing. You know. Mm. So it does feel like Freud's getting into the kind of psychoanalytic nitty gritty here. Um, and ha so, how does he finish finish up his retelling of of or his psychoanalytic cut of uh, Jensen's Gradiva. Right. Well, Freud, Freud um, finishes by um, looking at uh, Zoe's behaviour. You know, so Zoe's behaviour, first of all, through the narrative, for Freud suggests that from the very beginning, she was probably aware of the fact that Norbert's interest in Gradiva in this bas relief uh, represented a repressed desire for her. Um, her psychical treatment, as Freud describes it accomplished its uh, beneficent effects on him. Showing us that he's completely free from his delusion, Norbert offers a final explication of its structure when he tells Zoe how her surname, Bertgang, means the same as Gradiva. Right? So it refers to someone who steps along brilliantly. Now Freud describes how this is also how patients behave in treatment. So when they bring forward the solution and, in his own words, the most important riddles of their strange condition in a number of ideas that suddenly occur to them. So, you know, just like Oedipus in a way, um, who was known for the famous riddles, for solving the famous riddles. Zoe Burtgang then, the living woman who steps brilliantly along, replaces Gradiva, the, the sculpture, whose uh, frozen step is, uh, you know, is is on Norbert's wall. She becomes Zoe, the new love object. And we're in like kind of happy ever after territory now, as uh, Norbert and Zoe they decide to honeymoon. Um, fittingly enough, in Pompeii. Uh, so, so Jamie, that takes us nearly to the end of Freud's retelling of Gradiva. Oh, it does indeed. Um, but we started with the discussion about about charm. You know that that. The charm that Freud suggests is the product of Jensen's skill and techniques as this creative writer, but also the charm of Freud's own writing, which which you mentioned last week. So Freud did, of course, win the, the Goethe Prize for Literature. So let's hear how Freud concludes part one in his own words. I'm just going to turn to the text now. Um, and this is page 39 and 40 of, of the text. The delusion had now been conquered by a beautiful reality. But before the two lovers left Pompeii, it was still to be honoured once again. When they reached the Herculaneum Gate, where, at the entrance to the Via Consolare, the street is crossed by some ancient stepping stones. 
Norbert Hanold paused and asked the girl to go ahead of him. She understood him and, pulling up her dress a little with her left hand, Zoe Bertgal, Gradiva Redi Viva, walked past, held in his eyes, which seemed to gaze as though in a dream. So with her quietly tripping gait, she stepped through the sunlight over the stepping stones to the other side of the street. With the triumph of love, what was beautiful and precious in the delusion found recognition as well. In the last simile, however, of the childhood friend who had been dug out of the ruins, the author has presented us with the key to the symbolism of which the hero's delusion made use in disguising his repressed memory. There is, in fact, no better analogy for repression, by which something in the mind is at once made inaccessible and preserved, than burial of the sort to which Pompeii fell victim, and from which it could emerge once more through the work of spades. Thus it was that the young archaeologist was obliged in his fantasy to transport to Pompeii the original of the relief, which reminded him of the object of his youthful love. The author was well justified, indeed, in lingering over the valuable similarity which his delicate sense had perceived between a particular mental process in the individual and an isolated historical event in the history of mankind. Right, so that's the end of, of part one. It's just such a beautiful extract. Tom, any final thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it is just listening to you reading that, you know, this the fact that, you know, she she kind of maintains, doesn't she, this 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 fantasy of his, you know, that 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 um that thing of stepping over, becoming, you know, embodying the sculpture almost. And and how you know you're you're kind of a bit displaced between you know what's the original, and what's the um, and what's the copy you know and and she because she you know there's a kind of dialectical resolution almost I think between you know between her um her her liveness and you know the the the, the sculpture on the wall you know this 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 thing that captures this act of her walking so I think that first of all would be something that comes up. And then I guess just a word about visual culture kind of more generally. Um, I think we, we've got another example here, like in the paper uh, that we read last time, Constructions and Analysis, and of course in Civilization and its Discontents, um, where Freud uses this language of archaeology to illustrate the concepts and methods of, of psychoanalysis. Um, and Freud kind of continually at times in his work suggests um, the inadequacy of the image to describe the workings of, say, the unconscious, for example. But in a way, he still can't help but think in images. You know, to do without the image is kind of impossible, really, I think, for a writer of Freud's brilliance. Um, the bas-relief of Gradiva hanging on his wall, uh, you know, in in his study, I think, in Freud's study, just as the other, other objects in his uh, in his study, the things, everything that populated his collection, were as much, I think, tools for thinking as they were love objects or objects for cathexis. They were active parts in the development of concepts and methods of, of psychoanalysis. We can uh, we can also think of that, uh, the case of the Rat Man, of course, when Freud uh, illustrates the difference between the conscious 
and unconscious aspects of the mind by pointing to the objects in his room. Um, so he's using these objects, you know, this visual world, this visual culture, even though it's inadequate, you know, to the for the language of psychoanalysis, he's still using the uh, these these um this visual visual um, material world as kind of gateways into psychoanalytic thinking. And of course, that that just to finally uh, end now, that link between uh, object and theory was is one of the drivers behind our recent exhibition. Um, the Freud's antiquity object idea desire and you can still discover of course the trace of that exhibition and so much more in our digital archive which is available through our website very nice well thank you thank you so much Tom for just an excellent episode on Gradiva and it feels like we've just sort of experienced a really great movie you know we laughed yeah yeah. cried it was romantic um, I really and, and uh, ambiguous at the end as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really enjoyed Gradiva so far. Um, so don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for the next episode of Freud in Focus from the Freud Museum, London, with me, Jamie Ruiz, and my wonderful co-host Tom DeRose. Um, next time we'll be focusing on the dreams that Freud analyzes in the text. Um, so we'll see you then. Bye.